You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'm exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN and beyond. Polycystic ovary syndrome affects something like 1 in 10 women, and PCOS is the most common endocrine disorder in women of reproductive age. But, as we'll learn from Dr. Laura Cooney, it can be hard to identify and diagnose. Dr. Cooney is a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist in the UW Department of OBGYN. She discussed the criteria for diagnosing PCOS, how it can affect fertility, and why she is so passionate about helping PCOS patients. I'm very pleased to be talking to Dr. Laura Cooney today. Um, Dr. Cooney is a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist in our Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And uh, I want to talk to you about polycystic ovary syndrome. It's something I've been hearing a lot about, and September is um, PCOS Awareness Month. But before we get into that, um, what does your work look like? What is it like to be a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist? Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, so reproductive endocrinology and infertility, or REI, is kind of composed of two sort of separate ideas, and they're merged pretty closely. So a lot of people understand infertility, right? So if a, a couple or an individual is interested in getting pregnant and is having difficulty, they come to us, and we have a large range of treatment options, starting with medication or intrauterine inseminations and extending all the way up to IVF. The reproductive endocrinology aspect of that really combines the hormones that you think of when you think of traditional endocrinology and, you know, sort of a woman's menstrual cycle. So we see a lot of women who have irregular bleeding, um, maybe aren't getting their periods at all or having a lot of bleeding. Uh, it also extends to people with... Um, sort of adrenal disorders, thyroid disorders, so that's sort of the whole spectrum of different um, conditions that can ex influence um, your menstrual cycle. So I wanted to talk to you in particular because you recently launched a clinic um, specifically to work with patients with polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, and I'm very excited to learn more about your work in that clinic, but before we get there, what is polycystic ovary syndrome? Yeah, so PCOS is a difficult diagnosis, you know, so if we think about infertility, right, there, there's a definition for infertility and, you know, if someone's been trying for over a year and they're over, uh, under 35, they are diagnosed with infertility. If they're, it's been, they're over 35 and it's been um, six months or more, again, infertility. With PCOS, it's this very broad definition and we have worked, I would say, over the last couple of decades to really parse down this definition, give um, practitioners and patients alike very clear guidelines of what PCOS is. But it's composed of three different criteria. So women have irregular menstrual cycles. Um, they have evidence of elevated testosterone, either in their blood or sort of clinical signs like uh, facial hair growth. And then they have this classic appearance of their ovaries on ultrasound. So they have multiple small follicles on ultrasound. And so the diagnosis of PCOS is two out of those three criteria. So you can imagine it's a pretty heterogeneous disorder. You have some people that meet all criteria and some people that meet different two out of that three criteria, which can make it hard for a lot of people to diagnose. How common is it? It's incredibly common. So it's one of the, or really the most common 
endocrine disorder in reproductive aged women affecting somewhere between 10 to 20% of women, depending on, you know, the different diagnostic criteria that you use. It's also very underdiagnosed. So there have been studies looking at women and a lot of women are seeing multiple different providers taking two years or so before the time that they first have these symptoms and they're diagnosed. I've seen patients who have irregular periods when they were you know, 15 through 20, started birth control pills. 10 years later, they stopped the birth control pills. They still have irregular periods, and this is really the first time that they're getting a clear explanation of what's going on. Are there um, sort of patterns in who it shows up in? Are there any uh, demographic similarities that that you've noticed? So that's another good question. What's neat about PCOS is that there really is an international sort of group of researchers who are working hard on this. So there have been good studies looking at PCOS phenotypes in different countries across the world. And and so, you know, there's a big uh, group of researchers in Australia. There are a lot of people in India who are working hard on this. Um, I've seen a lot of studies coming out of England, out of Germany, out of Iran, like everywhere. And so, yes, there is a little bit of a variation um, in terms of what's normal, sort of even hair growth on the face. So the new guidelines that have looked at hirsutism in women recognize that people of um, Asian or Chinese uh, descent sometimes actually have a little bit more hair growth that is normal compared to Caucasian. So there's definitely variations in different populations, but overall, sort of the general frequency, you know, again, somewhere in that 10% or so is the same regardless of someone's ethnicity. You mentioned um, hair growth on the face. That's a maybe an, an indicator or a sign. Um, are there other other things that you would, like, you're seeing a patient, you'd look and think, oh, this might be, we should maybe get them tested to see if this is PCOS. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with hair growth, it's it's not just the face. So when we are scoring it, we look at nine different body parts. So sometimes it's chest or back or upper arm or, or thighs. So again, anyone with, with hair growth, it is also associated with bad like cystic acne um, with sort of what we call androgenic alopecia, so thinning of the hair. So those are sort of some of the most common sort of dermatological manifestations. Definitely the irregular periods is really one that a lot of people are presenting to us with. So these are people who will go three or four months without getting a period or have these really long sort of 45, 50-day cycles in between. Uh, Again, I've seen people who go for years and haven't gotten a period um, during that time. Those are the main physical signs. I think a lot of people get confused about where obesity plays a role in this. So about 60% of women with PCOS are overweight or obese. And what that means, though, is that a lot of patients and practitioners alike kind of focus on that aspect of things. But there's 40% of women with PCOS who are lean. So that's the population, too, that I think physicians have to be careful not to miss when they're diagnosing. Otherwise, a lot of the other sort of comorbidities that we're seeing with PCOS, things like diabetes, dyslipidemia, depression, anxiety, they all are associated with PCOS but don't have the sort of same sort of complaints sometimes that people are uh, coming and complaining about. Um, What do we know about what causes PCOS? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. The 
the, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, the longer answer is it's definitely multifactorial. There's been a lot of studies looking at identifying different genes or patterns of, of genes, and there are some that potentially may predispose someone to PCOS. There definitely seems to be some type of hereditary nature. Uh, as we can see, PCOS clustering in families. Um, someone with PCOS might have a sister or a mother who also has PCOS. A lot of the sort of newer research has focused on looking at what happens to a, a woman who's pregnant who maybe has PCOS or, or something and is she? Is there something about the intrauterine environment, you know, the level of testosterone that the baby, the fetus, is exposed to or other hormones that she has that might be programming that, you know, baby, the girl, who uh, to develop PCOS later on. So I think that there's going to be a lot more research coming out about that. Uh, but it's one of the hardest things to talk to patients about because we don't know. So I really wanted to talk to you about the intersection of PCOS and reproductive health, mm -hmm. um, especially since that's sort of your sweet spot uh, professionally. Um, there are, it, it can be complicated, right? It can present a lot of challenges. Um, how does a PCOS diagnosis or um, the presence of it affect uh, fertility and um, can it mean different things or different complications for pregnancy and delivery? Absolutely. So I think there's two aspects, as you just mentioned. So there's the difficulty getting pregnant, and then there's the what happens when you are pregnant. So we see a lot of women who are coming in with PCOS who are interested in getting pregnant, and really the, the problem is those irregular periods. So if someone is not getting a period, they're not ovulating and they can't get pregnant. The good news is that women with PCOS actually underlying everything still have good fertility. So I mentioned that on ultrasound we're seeing these small follicles. And the name itself, to sort of diverge a little bit, is a misnomer. So these cysts that the radiologist saw 30 years ago aren't cysts that cause problems. They're really just follicles that have an egg in them. So women with PCOS have a lot of these follicles with resting eggs. And once we get them to ovulate, they are able to get pregnant the same way as someone without PCOS. So we have a couple of good oral medication that women take uh, at the early part of their menstrual cycle for usually five days. And we can get them to get those resting follicles to ovulate. Um, and then they can get pregnant without any additional sort of intervention. So they take the medication and they can have intercourse. They don't need inseminations. They don't need IVF. Some women, if they have difficulty getting pregnant, we can add those therapies. But really there's, at this point, great treatment options for women with PCOS to get pregnant, uh, which is reassuring. In terms of when they are pregnant, you know, so PCOS is associated with a two to three fold increased risk of complications like preeclampsia, so high blood pressure of pregnancy, or gestational diabetes. So those are definitely things that I talk to women about. A lot of women with PCOS, um, we screen ahead of time to see if they already have impaired glucose tolerance or diabetes so that we know ahead of time what their risks are. But even in someone who, again, has normal glucose, is lean, and not overweight, they still have those increased risks. I was doing a little reading to prepare for this. You just mentioned um, impaired glucose tolerance, and that was something that I came across a few times, sort of a, I want to say insulin resistance. Yes, yes. Is that also uh, connected to or commonly found in PCOS patients? A hundred percent, yes. So insulin resistance is definitely something that underlies 
you know, a lot of women with PCOS, and it's somehow tied to the androgens, the testosterone. So there's definitely an interconnection. Uh, and again, even lean women with PCOS have increased risks of insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is sort of on this spectrum with diabetes. So you can sort of measure markers of insulin resistance, but they don't necessarily, again, have diabetes yet. But it puts them sort of at increased risk of developing either impaired glucose tolerance, which is like a pre-diabetes or diabetes later in life. Are there other um, health risks? We talked about um, possibly pre-diabetes and then um, blood pressure. Are there other health risks? There, there are unfortunately a lot. So um, women with PCOS have increased risks of dyslipidemia, so elevated cholesterol, lipids, um, have increased risks of depression or anxiety, eating disorders, um, sleep apnea, uh, fatty liver disease. Um, there's a big question as to the association with between PCOS and some longer-term problems like atherosclerosis or um MI, you know, heart attack or stroke, it seems like so the studies are mixed. You know, it's hard to study some of these long-term outcomes in these young women that then you have to follow for 30 to 40 years before you start to see uh, whether there's an increased risk, again, for heart attack or stroke. So it's something that the researchers are still looking at, but definitely a lot of other sort of major medical problems. You talked about um, medical treatment that can help with at least with fertility, right, and sort of stimulating uh, normal ovulation, which is great. Uh, are there other medical treatments available for people with PCOS? Yeah, so the first-line treatment is really lifestyle changes. So um, thinking about physical activity, thinking about nutrition, there have been good studies looking at even losing 5% of weight can improve and normalize someone's periods. So the first things that I focus on with women with PCOS is sort of getting them set up with a nutritionist, helping them set goals for you know what their activity will be, even changing little things like decreasing the amount of soda or sugary drinks that someone drink, uh, drinks. So working on that kind of stuff is really first line. When we think of other types of actual medications, for PCOS. Um, the first thing really is birth control pills. So someone with irregular periods, if you're not getting a period, can increase your risk of endometrial hyperplasia or cancer, which we haven't talked about yet. But putting someone in birth control pill to regulate those periods can decrease that risk. It also helps significantly um, with the, the hair growth. So that's one of the first-line treatments for someone with unwanted hair uh, is to put them on birth control pills. There are a sort of multitude of second-line treatments for the hair growth. So a lot of women will be on a medication called spironolactone. There's topical treatments. There's laser hair removal. So if someone starts to get, um, you know, they, they don't respond to the initial treatments, I frequently work with a dermatologist. And so you can see the, the underlying theme here is that there's so many different providers that can work with women with PCOS. And once you start to think about the pre-diabetes, that's where medications like metformin come in. A lot of different women with PCOS might be using metformin. Um, it used to be used more commonly in the fertility side of things until we got better medications like clomidor letrozole. So I use it a lot less commonly in women trying to get pregnant. Okay. So you mentioned if you're uh, missing periods, it's maybe a good idea to get on birth control um, to help reduce your risk of endometrial cancer. Uh, 
Is there any connection or correlation between PCOS and ovarian cancer? It's it's a great question. So there was a recent meta-analysis which basically combines multiple different studies because sometimes individual studies don't have enough data, but if you put it all together, you can get the data. Um, looking at PCOS and really all different types of cancers, and they found that there was no association with either ovarian cancer or breast cancer, which is you know the other thing that people worry about. So that's reassuring, right? We need a little bit of good news <laughs> with everything that we're saying. Um, so endometrial cancer, yes, but not necessarily the other big ones. Um, So speaking of the research front then, uh, are we learning anything new? Uh, Is there anything sort of up and coming about um, how PCOS works in the body and then how precisely how it is impacting um, physical and mental health? Yeah, so well, just a little plug about research at UW. Um, myself and Dr. Stanick, who is one of the other REIs working with me, who's actually a PhD and has a, an immunology lab here, we just got a grant to look at you know the immune profile in women with PCOS. So looking at whether or not the immunology changes you know, markers of inflammation in women with PCOS compared to women without PCOS. So this is one aspect of research that there's been a few studies, but it's sort of really uncharted. Um, I think that when you think about other aspects of research in women with PCOS, we've worked really hard to understand these associations. So I've talked about this association with, you know, depression, anxiety, we don't know why. So we're, we understand that, yes, there is this an association, but is it related to the testosterone? Is it related to the insulin resistance? Is it the inflammation? Is it something else going on with the cortisol and the way the brain is connecting to the body? We don't know. So I think the next stage is it re- in research just globally are to take a lot of these associations a step further, figure out what is underlying them so that we can figure out how to treat them. I can really hear like the passion in your voice about this. And I just have to ask what brought you to this area of research and like patient treatment? Yeah, I think that what I like about it is how it connects again to so many different subspecialties and really working with women where you can make such a big difference not just in the reproductive aspect of their life, but if you can help decrease someone's risk of diabetes, if you can help sort of decrease the risk of sleep apnea, something else we haven't even talked about, but there's so many different things here that, and again, these are women who have been to so many different providers who've been told, no, this is normal. Everybody has these irregular periods. No, there's nothing you can do about it. And there's a lot of decreased quality of life associated with, a lot of these symptoms and sometimes being able to put it together for people and really give them hope is, you know, it's a great place to be, you know. So I've just really, I've really enjoyed that aspect of it. Again, I think that there's a lot of research out there that hasn't been done yet. It's sort of a new frontier and field and I'm excited to sort of see where it goes. You um, talked about, you know, patients going to doctors, describing their symptoms and sort of being told, you know, this is fine, you're fine, everything's okay. And that immediately made me think of um, endometriosis and how challenging it can be sometimes to get that diagnosed and um, the long lag times between presenting with symptoms and finally figuring out what it is. Is there a similar um, gap 
in like between presentation and figuring out what's happening with PCOS? Absolutely. Um, again, there was definitely studies that looked at, I think it's an average of somewhere around three years, two to four years or so where someone is saying, I've been going to a doctor, I've been going to multiple doctors, they have been bouncing me around from doctor to doctor. Um, I was involved in a study where we surveyed OBGYNs about their, their practice patterns in sort of diagnosing women with PCOS. And a lot of women, a lot of physicians, sorry, a lot of physicians don't themselves know all of these different criteria. And you know, they might be able to say, yes, I'll recognize it on an ultrasound, but they forget to ask about the hair growth or they forget to ask about the periods. Uh, I think there's a lot of education that needs to be done, both for patients and for physicians. And I think that as we bring this sort of to the forefront and everyone starts to realize that this is a chronic condition that we need to tackle and focus on, all of that will get better. So what do you wish that physicians and patients knew um, that would sort of prepare them better for those uh, physician-patient visits and um, help us figure out what's happening for each patient a little bit faster. What are like the two or three most important things for sort of both sides of that appointment to be aware of? Yeah, I think that for physicians, the biggest thing is just being on top of the diagnostic criteria and things are changing and that makes it hard. So there were new guidelines that were just published that last month that increased, we've talked about the number of follicles and ultrasounds. So it, ultrasounds are getting better, right? We can see more follicles. And so that diagnostic criteria increased. We used to say the cutoff was 12 follicles. Now it's 20 follicles because again, we can see more. So I think it's hard for physicians to stay on top of these kind of changing criteria. Um, so I think that's the first thing is just sort of making sure that they're educated, making sure that they know when they need to ask for help. Um, and if it's a lot of physicians have niches, things that we work on, you know, this is, this is one of mine, but if it's something that it's not your focus or not your interest, being comfortable referring that patient to someone else uh, so that they can get the appropriate care that they that they need. And for patients, I think it's just being your own advocate. And a lot of patients are sort of learning this. And when someone is diagnosed with PCOS, it doesn't stop there. You know, they need to get screening for their cholesterol. They need to get screening for diabetes. And they need someone who knows about these associations with the less common things like depression, anxiety, or sleep apnea. And so them being their own advocate and when they talk to the doctor sort of saying, hey, is there anything else you need to test me for? How long do I need to get tested for these kind of things? And just sort of putting the conversation out there. Dr. Cooney, thank you so much for joining me. This was fascinating. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. On this podcast, we typically focus a lot on the sexual and reproductive health needs of adults. But the fact is those health concerns don't just appear out of thin air the second we turn 18, and pediatricians can be a very helpful resource for teens. On the next Women's HealthCast, I'll talk to Dr. Paula Cody of the UW Department of Pediatrics to learn more about how she helps teen patients fight the awkwardness and address their sexual health questions. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, 
Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WiskOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.